dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see the headlights on both ends of my day this country Welcome, folks, to this special episode of HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal. I'm Jennifer Latsky, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hi, Jenny. Well, folks, this week we're hard at work producing the virtual Cattle U, which is going on September 8th through the 11th. And in light of that, we've decided to make this a very special episode of HPJ Talk. You're going to hear our speaker, Dr. Tara Rooney Barnhart's full presentation on protecting our social license to operate. You know, Kayleen, Dr. Barnhart is a veterinarian in Southwest Kansas, and she works with feedlots and other cattle operations, but she's also a beef quality assurance instructor for the Kansas Beef Council, and I know that you know what BQA is, um, but folks, she's, Dr. Rooney is uh, very passionate about educating cattlemen and their employees about how they can handle cattle safely, both for the humans and the cattle's welfare. It just makes sense to follow BQA protocols. When we're working our cattle, we make sure we do it with as much attention to reducing their stress as possible so at the end of the day, there's no accidents and the cattle are not stressed. Stressed cattle don't do well for anyone. You know, Kayleen, my dad had a philosophy, go slow, go low, right? <laughs> yeah, and using horses keeps them, keeps them pretty calm too. There you go. Well, with today's keyboard warriors out there, cattlemen have to be so much more alert to what their actions might look like to someone who's on the outside looking in, whether those procedures are accepted handling um, methods or not. And that's part of what Dr. Barnhart's going to stress here, too. So gather the cattle handling crew around and listen to her presentation here. And don't forget, you can see the video of her presentation and all the sessions you might have missed at www.cattleu.net. so much for the introduction. I really appreciate everything that the High Plains Journal has done to put this program together. Um, for those of you that are were planning on coming to the in-person gathering in Dodge City, I, I initially agreed because it's really not far from home, but then I realized I just didn't move very far from home in general, and so I'm Southwest Kansas girl by heart, and I practice here um, in Southwest Kansas during my career, and I really thoroughly enjoy it. Right after veterinary school, I did a stint in mixed animal practice in Johnson. That's what brought us to this town and community. Um, shortly after realizing that I wasn't going to be a mixed animal practitioner and I wanted to follow my dream to um, work significantly, significant amount of my time with cattle only, I took a job with Cattle Empire as one of their on-staff veterinarians 
And that is where um, I really developed a passion for training other people and working with other people in the feed yard um, business, specifically with Cattle Empire. And now that I'm on my own and work with my own clients, I'm working with dairy producers, dairy on beef feeders, feedlots, um, and other producers in the Southwest Kansas area. And we just really work to elevate their operations and so that we can protect our social license to operate in the beef industry. And I'll talk a little bit about what I mean by protecting that social license. To give you an idea of where we're gonna go today, I'm gonna talk about why we're here. Um, originally, when I was slated to speak, we would have gotten a beef quality assurance program certification for everyone in the room or at attending the the talk that I was giving. There's, there's some challenges with that online. Um, virtually, it's difficult to determine who all is in the room if you're sharing the computer screen with family um, or employees. And it's difficult to handle that from a certification standpoint. But don't hesitate. Um, you'll get a lot of the BQA program initiatives through this talk. And don't hesitate to reach out to me or someone in your area with the Beef Council or the, the BQA program, and we can go ahead and get your operation certified. Because as it was mentioned yesterday, um, Brian Bertelson talked about some of the premiums that you can earn on the cattle that you're selling due to having this certification, safe, hand, um, safe animal handling, uh, different things like that that can bring some profit um, dollars to your pocket, which we know at the end of the day is the most important thing. So back to the topics I'm going to cover today. Um, I'm going to go over our social license to operate, what that means and why I'm so passionate about bringing that up when I train people at feed yards and um, different operations. And then I'll go over a little bit of cattle handling that I typically work with um, the employees with their boots on the grounds, the ones that we are going to um, train to be good animal caretakers. Um, I'll touch a little bit on the BQA program and then I'll entertain any questions and I'll share my contact information if you have questions in the future um, that come up after this presentation. So why are we here and what is a social license to operate? Um, Big businesses talk about this a lot, and our social license to operate is what our consumer is willing to allow us to do to produce the product that they're willing to buy. And so yesterday when Danette talked about the consumer often being the last person we mention um, when we talk about why we're here, why we're involved in the beef industry, um, that has to be turned on its head. We can no longer talk about, I want to pass this business on to my children. I want to pass this business on to my grandchildren. Because if we don't have a consumer who is willing to pay for the product that we put in the grocery store, we don't have anything. And so we are truly, truly privileged that we get this lifestyle um, and we get to promote this industry. I'm truly privileged that I get to work um, with beef producers, both on the dairy on beef side and, and the um, conventional beef side. It's only possible because of this woman right here. She's looking at those cuts of beef and she's wanting to take them home to her family. How do we make her feel good about what we're doing on a daily basis and make her feel comfortable to take those cuts home and prepare them and put them on her dinner table? Because it's an important choice for her 
where she's spending her dollars and where she is willing to put money at the grocery store. Um, we talked about yesterday that COVID-19 has brought some challenges. Um, among those are some of our consumers are faced with using cuts of beef they aren't confident with. So what are we doing to make her confident with that cut of beef that she's contemplating and, and give her some confidence when she takes that home to her family? The social license to operate gives us um, the ability to have consumer trust. We have to build and protect that consumer trust, and then we have to sustain it. And so the consumer trust really begins in our business models, our operating principles. The beef industry is, is so lucky um, when you look at vertical and integration of our of our friends and colleagues in the swine and poultry industries, they really have it a little bit more difficult because they don't have that pasture scene, the, the family that's working cattle on Sunday. They don't have that luxury that the beef industry has. We still have a majority of our cattle spending the majority of their life with a family just like yours and mine. And so we build or we start that consumer trust by showing them what our business models are, teaching them about our operating principles, showing them programs like our beef quality assurance program so that they can, we can begin to get that trust. Then we need to build and protect that trust. How do we do that? We do the right thing. And then we need to be seen doing the right thing. And sometimes we need to be able to document that we did the right thing, right? Um, some of my bigger feedlot clients uh, and dairy clients, they definitely know about how often they're going to get audited and, and what it's going to look like and how to document um, everything that, we, that goes on on a daily basis in a feed yard. But we need to trickle that down to the cow-calf, to the stalker, to the grow yard. How do we get everyone on that track um, of being willing to um, do the right thing every time and then also be seen doing the right thing? A great example of this was seen with the Fairlife Milk Company. Um, they have many dairies. Uh, the system that they put into place worked, right? They caught the perpetrators that were abusing animals on their dairies. They fired them. They were no longer working for them. The system worked. However, the video still got out into media and it still caused a stain on the dairy industry. And they're building it right back. They, they didn't fall, they didn't crumble. They're gonna come back stronger, just like that video previous um, from the Angus Association. They're gonna come back stronger and they're gonna do the right thing. But now they're gonna be seen doing the right thing because I think there's a camera on every square inch of every single dairy that supplies milk for fair life. Just an example of somebody um, in our ag industry that has faced something pretty serious in recent years. And then sustainability, as if that isn't a buzzword that everyone likes to throw around, but a social license to operate requires and ties in really well with sustainability. It's built over time. It has to be sustained over time. And that doesn't just mean environmentally friendly. It means that we can produce beef the same way that our consumer expects it today and tomorrow. Um, and so that is super important when we talk about this social license to operate and what we can do to protect it. And the rest of my talk is really spending time 
talking about the animal welfare and animal handling things that you can do on your operation to protect our social license to operate, to protect our privilege to be cattlemen and women in the United States. So cattle handling is one of the things I love doing on a daily basis. I'm fortunate enough to be able to train a lot of people, um, to work with a lot of people. We have our boots on the ground on a daily basis over here in Johnson and the surrounding area. Um, I don't want to sit here and say that I'm the expert on cattle handling. I work with so many skilled workers that have spent more time handling cattle than I've been alive. They do a phenomenal job. I'm not out here training them because they don't know what to do. I'm training them because I'm giving them the why behind why we do it, um, when to have the confidence to correct someone who's doing it wrong, um, and how to train new people who maybe weren't involved with cattle handling prior to coming into their new position at a dairy or a feedlot or a grow yard. So one of my things, and please excuse my Spanish, it's also not the most wonderful Spanish, but I try to get along. I work really um, closely with a lot of language diverse people. And so one of my main sayings that I talk to these guys about is um, in Spanish, it's lento es suave, suave es rapido. And that means slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And we talk about this when you learned to shoot a layup for the first time in basketball. You didn't just go 90 miles. An, well, I never went 90 miles an hour anywhere because I was really slow, but you didn't just get a basketball and run down the court, shoot a layup and have the correct footing and the correct hand placement and just do it all perfectly. Did you No, your coach broke it down? They took a something commonly that you'd need to do in a basketball game, a skill you would need to acquire, and they broke it down. And you didn't get good at shooting a layup until you were really slow. You broke down the footing, you broke down what you were supposed to do with your hands, how you were supposed to switch the ball over, and what you would do to finish your shot. You broke it down very slow, and in that instance, you became very smooth. And once you did it a bunch of times, very slowly, you became very smooth at doing it. And once you're doing things smoothly, you're doing them faster. So we've got to slow our people down. We've got to teach them so that to get really good at a craft, you become smooth. And once you're smooth, you're handling cattle at a faster speed and nothing is a race when we're working with cattle. And so and a faster speed means an efficient speed. It means at the feed yard, we have 800 re-implants that we need to get through the barn today. And we have this many hours to do it. How can we arrange our work and be as smooth as possible? And it will get done faster than what we thought by just ramming and jamming things around. So, to talk about some of these cattle handling things, you have to really break it down to the very beginning, the very basics. And I love putting these pictures up because my family means the world to me. Um, the picture on my right or uh, your guys's left would be my grandfather, Archie, and my dad on a horse. Um, I won't even mention how old that picture is, but it, it's a good old family heirloom. And then the next picture is my son and I in the feed yard checking on some cattle. And you want to talk about something that hasn't changed between these two pictures and it's cattle behavior. And that's something that was the same back when my grandpa used to handle cattle. And it's going to be the same when Archie's 
old enough, my little Archie is old enough um, to be handling cattle himself. And these basics of biology don't change. So once we learn them, we commit them to memory and then it's something that we just live with. So I broke it down to the five Ps and you're gonna laugh because some of them have maybe better words, but they didn't all fit together. So the first thing is personality. And that's a super important skill to be able to teach employees, but it's also important for you to know the personality of the cattle that you're about, about to handle. The personality of some Holstein steers that have been on feed in a feed yard is completely different than the ones that came up from Louisiana in this rainstorm that prior to yesterday had never seen a human and a helicopter gathered them out of the swamp. Can you imagine that the personality of how you would approach those cattle, how they're going to respond to you is gonna be pretty different. Most of you, if you're in a cow-calf um, operation or you have your own family operation where you're dealing with the same cattle year after year, you have a pretty good idea of, your, of the personality of the animals you're working with. Some of our people that we work with at these dairies and feed yards, they don't get that luxury. There might be um, an ornery pin or a customer that sends really flighty cattle. So we have to teach people to read cattle and figure out what um, what they're dealing with. And it's a pretty easy thing to assess by just walking in the pen, getting your boots on the ground and figuring out what you're dealing with. Pack mentality. So of course, this is the idea that cattle like to um, mingle in herds. They like to exist in herds. Um, they are pack animals. And so they want to stay together. If you're ever having trouble with one single animal, go get him a friend. That's what I always tell people um, that I'm working with because they do have a herd mentality and we need to use that to our benefit. Predator and prey relationship is pretty basic. Obviously, cattle are on the prey side of this, but you are seen as a predator to them. So it's easy to um, forget that when you walk in a pen and you're wondering why they're responding the way they are to you and it's because you're the predator in this situation. Any movement you make that mimics a predator is going to make them go more prey-like in their stance or their response to you. Um, the prey the biology of them being prey animals, they also have a very wide peripheral vision and they have a huge blind spot behind their head. So you need to think about what, what about their eyeballs makes them respond to humans differently. It's because they're a prey animal. Pressure and release, I always talk about this as please and thank you. When you're gonna ask an animal to do something for you, to move in a direction that you want them to go, you're going to put pressure on them. It is so important that they, then you remove that pressure, you thank them. Thank you for doing what I asked you to do. It's like working with toddlers, right? I'm, I may not be an expert at all things, I'm definitely struggling in the toddler bus, but you, you ask them to do something, you thank them for doing it. So give them some pressure, then let off the pressure um, and thank them for doing exactly what you asked them to do. And then point of balance, I, in this point in my career at my young age, I will not sit here and say that, you know, certain schools of thought are correct on the point of balance. Um, some behaviorists will argue that it is at the eye, the animal's point of balance is at the eye. And when I go over the flight zone next, um, you'll really see why that matters. Um, and then other experts will talk about the point of balance being at the shoulder. Um, 
I think it's probably somewhere in between, right? We don't need to determine exactly where it is. Um, but the important thing is, is that point of balance on an animal is their steering wheel to get them to go a specific direction. And so the point of balance being at the eye or the shoulder, I think it changes when you're in a alleyway or a chute. I believe that your point of balance is more at the shoulder. And then if they're out on a pasture or in a large pen, I believe it's more um, closely related to the eye. But again, I, I won't argue that point. <laughs> so the, and my slides all have Spanish because I work with a very um, English uh, language diverse group of people. Um, and so I always want to have that touch in there. But if this is helpful for your operation, I, I hope it is. So we talk about the flight zone in cattle and the flight zone is, is important for us to understand as cattle handlers and nobody understands a flight zone better than a, a group of people who have moved cattle on pasture, right? Because a flight zone is when um, the space surrounding the animal that when a human enters it, it will either call attention to the animal or cause them to move. And so this is one of those things that's evolved even over my short career. We used to think of the flight zone as simply round and all of the diagrams were circular. And you'll see in this diagram, um, it is much more oval shaped. We believe um, now after studying animal behavior and really looking at cattle handling um, in large production units, we see that the flight zone is much larger in front of the animal than it is particularly when you're perpendicular to the animal. And so you have a little bit more leeway here in front of the animal. Um, remembering that they're predator and prey, it's important to point out the punto ciega, the blind spot. And that means this big black triangle, they can't see you. Whenever I have a person trying to get an animal to move and they're standing in this area right here, it's really useless. I always pull them and move them to the side. You're not gonna get an animal to move from the blind spot, they simply can't see you. So when you talk about the outer edge of the pressure zone, which is a lot of times in animals, you will come to this area and you will catch their attention. Ears up, they'll pay attention to you, they wanna know what you're doing. Um, then you'll move in to the pressure zone, through it, and into the flight zone. Once you cross into the flight zone, the animal will actually move once you've crossed into that area. Um, flight zone is important. We talked about the personality of animals when you're assessing a group that you're going to handle. And so then the flight zone obviously changes with the personality. You can imagine those steers I talked about from um, the swamps where they got they were uh, gathered to come to the feed yard by a helicopter, their flight zone, their pressure zone, everything's a lot larger than the Holsteins that are on feed. Um, Holsteins in general, you just need to study that and figure it out for your own, for yourself. If anybody told, tells you that they've written the book on Holsteins, they are lying because they are interesting creatures, but it's something that our industry is dealing a lot more with. And I, I think they have a fun personality, but it's definitely different and something um, that's less um, by all the rules, they kind of change. So this idea of when you come into the flight zone of the animal, you can get them to move in different directions based on where 
you enter their flight zone. And it's something you really need to study. If you're coming at them um, from this direction in their flight, flight zone and you step back into the pressure zone, a lot of times you'll get them to stop. If you come at them at this direction and you're in the flight zone, a lot of times they'll move forward. So you work on that point of balance to get them to move forward or backwards. And I'll show you um, on the next slide, I believe. Nope, sorry. I'm gonna talk about the economic benefits first. So the economic benefits of handling cattle correctly should be pretty well perceived by now. Um, Yesterday it was talked about several instances where if we don't have something that pays well and pays real money, then we shouldn't be participating in it. It's very difficult um, to attribute dollars and cents to good animal handling, good animal care, time spent doing BQA training, time spent on a Zoom meeting with Cattle U and the High Plains Journal. It's hard to put dollars and cents to that, but there's some of these things that you just inherently know are going to make you more money. And I will tell you from a performance standpoint, we can conserve a lot of shrink. A lot of our cow-calf guys don't worry about shrink too much because it doesn't affect your bottom line, but in the feed yard, that means real dollars, real pounds. And so we've got to be careful at the feed yard with good animal handling, um, especially in those final days before the, the day of shipment or, you know, when we bring them onto the yard so that we get them set up for their re-implant, that they're less stressed when they go through the processing barn, we can conserve shrink on these animals, get them back to feed, get them back to gaining weight. Carcass quality has been shown to increase with crews that produce, um, that demonstrate better animal handling skills, um, especially in this sense that they're not bruising the carcasses, the carcasses aren't getting beat up um, when they're loading trucks, things like that. Um, but we can definitely reduce the amount of dark cutters, stressed out animals and things like that when we're handling cattle quieter. Productivity is real dollars in your pocket when we talk about not having to repair your facilities or not having to pull in more labor because you're able to work your cattle by yourself. You don't need a day laborer to show up and help you because it's not a rodeo. Um, you're able to do it with just your family members. That's real um, productivity and that's, that's a real economic benefit. And then one thing I always touch with on, on the people I train and I think everyone in the beef industry um, shares this sentiment is safety of humans and animals is paramount and in that order. Um, we just had a pretty bad accident at one of the farms that I go to and it was tough. Number one, when my people come to work, I want them to go home to their people safely. Um, and so if we can't handle our cattle in a safe manner, we can't get our people home to their people, we don't need to be in business anymore. And so it is so important to lecture that with your people because not only from tugging on your heartstrings and, and these people matter to you, um, but from the cost of, of injuries and workman's comp and things like that, that are real cost to your business. So whenever I give a talk about cattle handling or BQA, people always talk, want to know my opinion on persuaders. So I just went ahead and made a slide about it. Um, persuaders, I think for the most part, I've put into three buckets and I don't wanna say that these won't change in the future. I think this is where we are right now. I think this is um, how the industry handles it 
currently, um, but that doesn't mean that these things won't change and, and things move around in the buckets. And so in my okay to use buckets, I have flags, rattle paddles, flags with palms. And this picture in the bottom corner is kind of hard to see, but a lot of the guys at the feed yards will take the um, shaft from a flag that's tattered or torn, and then they will create a pom-pom at the end of it. They create the pom-pom from the spent tape out of the, um, when they're making tags at the processing barn, but you could actually just attach a pom-pom. And these are really useful tools in the processing barn because you can see how he's using it. He's actually loading cattle into a race from a bud box, and he's using this palm to shake slowly right here and extend his reach for the cattle to continue their movement um, down that raceway and not have to walk over there. So he can kind of conserve his energy with the use of that palm. Rattle paddles, this is my biggest pet peeve and I, I'm not getting anywhere. So hopefully somebody else can take this crusade, but rattle paddles are awesome. They're the same thing as the palm, the idea of extending your noise or extending your reach to get cattle to move away from you or move in a direction um, that you're wanting them to go. If your paddle does not have rattles in it, that means you've used it inappropriately. You, you must have a rattle paddle um, because that means you've hit it either on an animal, which is really wrong, or you've hit it on the side of the shoe or on the side of the fence or on the tub to try to get the animals to move. And that's inappropriate. Those are loud shrieking noises that scare these animals and get it to where they're not gonna respond well to their humans. So remember that when you walk into a processing barn or you walk in to work cattle with your family, if your rattle paddles are missing all their rattles and it's not because the kids have been hitting each other, definitely have a talk and get rid of them because that means they're using them inappropriately. We discourage the use of electric prods and whips in all the facilities that I go to. I have seen whips used appropriately on cow-calf ranches, um, more for a noise effect. Some, one of the guys I work with use it. It's, it's more for their working dogs. They hear the crack of the whip, they know which direction to go. And so that, um, the use of whips is, I think should be discouraged from the standpoint of what that public perception is, what our social license to operate, if that were seen on the news, would people be very pumped about that? Mostly because they don't know what that whip is doing. They don't know that when it's cracking, it may just be cracking on itself. Um, and then electric prods, we really need to decrease the amount of use that we have them. They are important tools. I do not wanna see them taken away because there are so many times that you absolutely do need a prod just to encourage animals to move forward. But there's so many times that they're used inappropriately and that's where we're gonna get in trouble. And so if we can just self-regulate as an industry, we'll do a lot better for ourselves. Not allowed, obviously, striking the animals with any of these. So just because I've said, hey, this is a good persuader to use doesn't mean that you can strike the animals with them. And then obviously sensitive areas should not be the eyeballs, um, vulva, anus, those kind of areas we've got to leave alone. Um, ears, I really don't like to see electric prods stuck in the ears. It just doesn't look good to the public and I don't think we should tolerate it. And I don't think it's very nice to the animal.
So this was the slide I was talking about earlier. When we're talking about the point of balance in animals, um, I think it actually changes quite a bit when they are in a raceway um, up to a chute. And so let's think of these cattle as walking towards the chute. Their point of balance is, is probably at their shoulder, mostly because most of the time they can't see very well. Their, their vision is constricted while they're in this um, smaller gathering. This is a huge point to show people. And it's one of the biggest mistakes I see in processing barns when I'm working with people is if say the second animal doesn't want to move, sorry, say the first animal doesn't want to move, they'll often come to the second animal and twist his tail and push him along. And I don't ever understand that because why are they pushing on this animal? Because this one won't move. Um, if the first one will not enter, you must walk up to the front of that animal and then walk in a direction that's opposite of the direction you want them to move. So you're walking towards the back of the race while you're trying to get the animals to move towards the front of the race. Most of the time they will all move there if you just stay put and let them move. Now, say that animal gets scared of something or the person operating the chute shuts the back gate. Then that animal's confused. We asked it to go through the gate and then we shut it and then we opened it and there was a lot of noise and they just didn't know what to do. You have to return to the front of the race outside of the flight zone. So get on out of here, away from the race, and in this triangular fashion, come back to the front of the animal and then walk in, in this path um, in the opposite direction that you want them to move. It's so important to leave the flight zone. And I, it's the number one thing that I correct people on. And I'm going to start arguing with people because I know everyone's in a contest nowadays. Everyone's got a Fitbit or an iWatch or whatever, and they want to see how many steps they get in a day. Those will add a lot of steps to your day. Um, but back to our slow is smooth, smooth is fast mantra, it actually gets it to where you, you might be taking more steps, but the cattle will move more naturally. So you won't have to walk to the front of the chute as often. As long as you keep doing this pattern, the animals will start understanding, oh, that's what she's asking them to do. Let's just keep doing that. When you're gathering animals out of a pen, it is a little bit more difficult or a pasture. Um, nobody is better at understanding uh, how to move cattle out of a pasture than somebody who has been in that particular pasture multiple times um, trying to gather cattle because there's some nuances definitely. So if the number one thing, do not chase lone animals. If you have one animal that breaks away from the group and gets off by itself, leave him. 90% of the time, once you get your group out of the gate, he'll he'll come, he'll figure it out. He'll say, oh no, my herd left me. I'm going to go get with them. Um, and if he doesn't, go grab a few head, bring them in, get them a pack, and then move them as a herd. So when I walk into a pen, I'm going to come into the pen and walk to the opposite corner of the gate you want them to move. Cattle that have moved in and out of a gate a lot of times at a feed yard, like for exercise or re-implant or processing, a lot of times we'll just leave the gate if you stand right where my mustard little cowboy guy is standing. Um, if that does not work, then go to the opposite corner diagonally from the gate that you want them to move, and you need to move in a direction back and forth. And the point of this is so that you get on the left and the right side of their point of balance, 
or their blind spot, sorry, their blind spot, they can't see you, remember, directly behind you. And so you've showed up over here and then you've showed up over here and then you show back up over here. They start realizing, okay, she just wants me to move forward. And so that's an important um, distinction to make. Definitely move in this direction. If you have a helper, it's great to have him stand in this corner. If you don't have a helper, once you get cattle moving, sometimes you yourself can go there. Again, this all depends on the flight zone of the cattle and how many times they've gone in and out of a gate. So every time we talk about cattle handling, it always comes up. Do you like Bud Williams style, Bud Box designs, or do you like Temple Grandin, Tub, Curve, utilizing the animals uh, need to go back where they've come from design? And I'll tell you, I've worked in a lot of both. I like a lot of things about both, and I don't like a lot of things about both. Both of these people, um, Bud Williams and Temple Grandin, have done a phenomenal job of helping the beef industry realize very key important things about cattle handling. What we did as an industry is we took that and said, okay, that's how we have to build everything, and that's the only way it works. Well, no, we can adjust, we can make things that are different. And I will tell you that I truly do not care between a Williams and a Grandin style build. If you're going to build a cattle working facility, the, if you follow this one principle, it won't matter what you build. It will matter more how much space you have and what your preference is. But if you follow one principle, it honestly does not matter what way you go, bud box or grandin. And that principle is only bring up the number of head that will fill your race. And so if you have like in this bud box design, a race that goes to the chute and you only have room for two of your mama cows, that means every time you bring up a group, you're bringing up two head and you're bringing up two head, you're shutting your gate, you're getting them to go into the race, you wait, a few seconds while they work those two mama cows, and then you go get two more. So can you imagine who's gonna win the step contest when we're working cattle? Yes, it's the person who's going up back and forth to get cattle. And that's because if it's done correctly, you are always on the move. This gate is barely shut. It, it shuts for a few seconds, cattle go down the race, then you open it right back up, you hold for a few seconds and you go get two more head. That's one thing that people do wrong with the Grandin system a lot of times is they'll use these tubs, um, many of these holding areas as huge holding areas for cattle. Do not do that. Do not teach cattle that when you bring them up there, you want them to stand and walk around in circles until they're confused and they don't know what direction you want them to go in. If you can fit um, it looks like you could fit, you know, seven of these steers in this race. It's a long way up to that chute. These are smaller steers. Go get that many animals. Fill your tub. Your tub shuts. The animals have filled the race. Open your tub. Sit there for a hot second while they get some of the cattle moved and go get your next seven head. Don't ever write on a whiteboard in the processing barn that only bring 10 head up or only bring two head up. It really depends on what cattle you're working. If you're working your calves, you can fit a few more. 
If you're working your mom and cows, you can fit less. If you're working your bulls, you can fit even less. So the design of your system is not as important as the length of the race that you put on it and that that alleyway up to your chute. That is the most important element of your design. Do you want cattle sitting there very long? I don't. It's hot. We're going to stress them out, shrink them. We don't need cattle standing in that race very long. If we're working mom and cows in the fall, we want them to get back with their babies. So why would we have that race very long? We don't need that as a holding pen either. So if you have a short race, just know you can only bring up the number of head that will fill your race. If you do that, you can make any system work, I promise. Cattle handling during transportation is something that has garnered more attention from the BQA people and program. Um, recently, the Packers in our area in Southwest Kansas came down with a ruling that no trucker would be allowed to unload cattle unless they were BQA transportation certified. So that's something that I've been spending quite a bit of time getting truckers certified. That's important knowledge. If you have not come to a packer in a long time, you haul cattle um, from your grow yard once or twice a year. Um, definitely know that, that whoever you hire or if you're doing it yourself, that you must be BQA transportation certified in order to unload. They have turned down, down people um, with potloads of fat cattle. So they're taking this very seriously and we need to meet them halfway and take it just as seriously. Cattle handling during transportation and especially loading um, prior to transportation is our most unnatural thing. We're asking cattle to go up or down. We're asking them to go into an area that has um, a lot of shadows, a lot of lights, a lot of problems, a lot of noise, something new, different smells, those types of things. So it's very unnatural. We need to have a lot of grace with our people when we're training them how to do that. Most facility issues that I find are at the loading and unloading chute. It's funny because at the feed yard, they use the unloading and loading chute like every single day. And yet this is where we see the most facility issues because it's usually a time where whoever's unloading the cattle has a task to go do right after that. You know, they unload the cattle, they count them, they approve them, they sign some paperwork, and then they get them on feed, water, they move them to their home pen. And so it's super important to check these facilities right before you're going to use them. Make sure that they're in good working order, safety for the humans and the animals. Um, we don't need to have issues with fat cattle on a loading chute right before we're trying to get them to slaughter. And then this is where I see the most improper use of prods. Um, understandably, it's the most unnatural use of um, getting cattle to respond to our behavior. And so I do see a lot of prod use and I try to just try to discourage it as much as possible. Cattle handling is something that every one of us involved um, during the transportation process, every one of us involved in the beef industry can take seriously because even those of us growing up in Southwest Kansas, there's a lot of you, um, there's a lot of people on the road, not necessarily us on this uh, Zoom meeting, but a lot of people on the road that they've grown up in Garden City, they've grown up in Dodge City. We literally slaughter 25% of the United States cattle and their only interaction with cattle at all is the pot that's going down 83 or the pot that's headed down wider boulevard or different places like that. 
And so when we have an accident like this that's depicted in this picture, when we have a disaster like this with fat cattle or, or even, you know, cow-calf bears that we're trying to move pastures, we can stop. We may not be the ones who help um, cut the trailer apart and get the cattle out because we're just not equipped um, a lot of times to help if you're on your way to work or you're on your way somewhere, but maybe you can help the cops understand that we keep spectators in their vehicles, that we keep people parked 10 miles away from the accident instead of the whatever is legally required, that we keep people from seeing something that might lose their trust in the beef industry. Um, because many of these accidents, as, as a lot of you know, do require euthanasia, um, do require some pretty um, pretty hard to stomach images. And so if we can keep our consumer shielded from that, that is our responsibility when we're on the road, if we've ever seen one of these accidents or driven up on it. The Beef Quality Assurance Program um, is something that I'm super passionate about, um, mostly because I started uh, at a really young age in my 4-H career um, with my old extension agent was so passionate about getting all of us beef quality assurance certified. At that time, it was pork quality assurance because the BQA program hadn't really taken off yet. Um, when we talk about a program that has spanned decades and done so much for an industry, it is one that I just, um, my hat's off to the people who have developed it and the people who have worked hard for it. My master's degree was working on a beef quality assurance assessment and on-farm assessment in 56 Kansas feed yards in which we found that a majority of the feed yards were doing a great job. We just had to work on record keeping. We had to work on, we're doing what we say we're doing every day. So these on-farm assessments, if you're interested in getting your farm um, assessed, check with your BQA office or your local veterinarian that you already work with. If there's someone who's not comfortable with it, if they're in a mixed animal practice and it's not really their forte, give me a call. I love doing these on-farm assessments. They give us a lot of benchmarks to work through. It's not a we're going to come every month and do this. Sometimes I come once, twice a year. Um, these assessments are super important if you're going to participate in any of our uh, packing plant driven pro uh, programs that, that help you market your meat for more, um, more profit. In-person trainings are usually a more dynamic not option. I think people really enjoy them. I do a lot of them as well. I enjoy um, delivering them. They can be bilingual which is very helpful so that we can have a, a good idea that our employees understand what we're saying and they take to heart what we've delivered to them. It, we can do an online training that's bilingual, but sometimes in person, I can really read the audience and see, hey, that did not translate well. And there's a lot of things that just don't translate correctly um, because Spanish and English are not identical languages and they're very interesting in their own right. And so sometimes that, um, when you can read the audience, you do a better job of realizing if the Spanish population has understood what you've said, or the English population has understood what you said. Sometimes you can talk above people's level or below people's level, and you can read the audience. Um, sometimes on these online Zoom meetings, it makes a little bit more difficult to even understand um, what your audience will take away from what your goals for the presentation were. Of course, the Beef Quality Assurance also has their online courses. You can certify yourself. You can certify your people. Most of the time, it's free. I think um, it's very a very sponsored thing. It's easy to do. Um, 
in the age of technology, nobody should have, in this age of technology, nobody should have a good excuse because we're all Zoom experts by now. So you can definitely get through the BQA online if that's something that suits your taste or your operation. So some of the key practices of the BQA program, we talked a lot about animal handling. We talked a lot about um, our consumers and why it's important to do the right thing for them. But some of the, the key practices that the BQA program brings up that I'd like to touch on a little bit, and I, I'm not gonna delve too deep into it because if you were to get BQA certified after this event, um, you'll learn more in depth about these, but food safety and quality is paramount for this program. They were the ones who pioneered where we put an injection and why it's the correct place to put it, right? We're not going to ruin the hide, the important cuts of beef. We're not going to ruin things um, by utilizing poor injection placement. We can do a better job. We can be smarter about that. Food safety is huge. If our consumers are going to have trust in our product, they're going to have a safe product a wholesome product to put on their dinner table. Um, a big part of that is working with your veterinarian to determine after a prescribed treatment is given, how long should you hold that animal before it's eligible for slaughter or eligible for railing or eligible for different um, marketing avenues. The animal health and welfare side of it, um, is definitely working with your veterinarian, working with your nutritionist, learning how to properly handle your cattle like we talked about today on a few of the, a few of the areas that I touched on. Um, working with a, a nutritionist and a veterinarian to establish a relationship that you're doing what you should be doing with your cattle and that they're well taken care of and their health and welfare is at the forefront of your operation. And then record keeping is a huge paramount of the BQA program. It's a problem in most operations, um, even the big ones. The big ones have huge software, uh, big software, big powerful software that allows them to document things easier. Just because it's documented doesn't mean a human looked at it and said that's correct. So just because their software allows them to look up the treatments and make sure that cattle are eligible um, for harvest doesn't mean that a human didn't look at that report and go, hmm, looks good. And there was actually an animal in there that was not eligible for harvest. So don't think that because you run a small operation or you have 30 cows as a hobby farm, um, just as you're tied to the beef industry that you can't do good, a good job of record keeping. A steno pad is good record keeping if you manage it correctly. So if you keep your treatments, if you keep your weaning dates, your, your vaccination dates, things like that in that steno pad, you don't need anything fancy. Excel works really good. There's some great software programs out there that you can look at. Um, there's some really neat apps that are available as well. I don't want to get to the end of my I don't want to get to the end of my talk without um, expressing some gratitude towards some people. I've had the fortunate um, fortunate ability to have several mentors that have really invested a lot of time, energy, shared knowledge, and shared passion with me as a as a young student and as a young colleague. Um, 
giving a talk like this and BQA, animal handling, um, these kind of topics, I, I would have to bring up Dr. Dan Thompson, my master professor, and Dr. Dave Seclosha, who was my boss while I was at Cattle Empire. These two people worked really hard to share their, their knowledge and, and experience in the beef industry with me. And without them, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And so I, I always want to, to give thanks to them when I have the opportunity to do so. Programs like the Beef Quality Assurance are not free. They're not cheap. They're not ran on dust. They definitely take money. They take uh, time. They take people being dedicated to the vision. And these programs are often I am fully funded by beef checkoff dollars. So you as producers, thank you. Thank you for these programs. Thank you for being members of these organizations. Thank you for promoting them, participating in them and putting them to work. Um, call me if you need help putting them to work in your operation because it's something that I enjoy doing, but these programs don't exist without significant um, investment. And I think they pay dividends for our industry in maintaining our social license to operate with our consumer. And then conferences like these, um, when they're in person, do not just happen overnight. You can imagine um, all of us were very excited to be in Dodge City this summer. Nobody wanted to do this virtually, but the High Plains Journal and the people who had a vision for Cattle U, um, who picked out the speakers and arranged everything and then technologically completely changed it, um, they need to have our hats taken off for them because for us to be able to get this information at our fingertips is really cool. And it's really important for us to be better beef producers. And I think they deserve our thanks today. Any references that I made, just so there's no conflict of interest, any references I made to a Grandin system, to a Bud Williams system, I get no financial um, obligations from those people. Those are just systems that I commonly work with on a daily basis and know that are used in, in the industry. The Beef Quality Assurance website, stockmanship.com, grandin.com. Those are great places to get more information. I touched the very brim of what these people have spent their entire life studying and putting to work. So please don't think that, hey, I, I don't feel like I got a good enough um, dive into the flight zone. There's so much information on that on grandin.com. So please um, use these references for your use in the future to learn more. Like I've mentioned several times, don't hesitate to catch up with me. I'm on social media. I usually share about my little bratty kids so you can get a good laugh at them. Um, but a, a few things about being a vet and, and being a mom and just trying to stay above water for the most part. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in for our special Cattle U episode of HPJ Talk. We'll be right here next week with stories, commentary, and more from the September 14th edition of High Plains Journal. Remember, you can look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Thanks again to Alta Seeds for sponsoring this week's episode. Alta debuted its new iGrowth sorghum line in the first ever Sorghum Frontiers Virtual Field Day. 
iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to sign up and catch the second installment of Sorghum Frontiers at hpj.com slash sorghumfrontiers to learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com slash podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends of my day. This country life is for me. Ride with us, HPJ. Ride